discipleship. I'm really glad that, that it's the uh, theme of this weekend because understanding discipleship is one of the most important things that you can understand as a Christian. And it's something that is um, very important to us, uh, but not just us. It's not just our style. It's very important in the Word of God, as I hope you'll see uh, tonight after we're done. And um, you having an understanding of discipleship, both you yourself being a disciple of Jesus and you participating in the work of helping make disciples, is, I would say, the most important thing that you can learn. Um, we all know how important it is to understand salvation, understand repentance, understand what faith in God is. But discipleship is the rest of our lives. And it goes from the time when we follow Jesus all the way until we see him face to face. I love that first song that we sang when it talks about all of our hopes becoming realities. Um, discipleship is the process that moves us toward that. And as Paul says, we, we grow from, from one degree of glory. We are transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold the face of God. And I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Discipleship is important. Okay? And it's important to us. In our community, we have committed ourselves to be disciples. We are a community of disciples. We're not a community of um, a mixture of really spiritual Christians and a mixture of people who are just sort of around and having a good time. We have committed ourselves and covenanted ourselves together to be a community of radical disciples of Jesus. And everybody understanding discipleship is, is key to that. All right, so I'm really glad we're spending some time here this weekend. Um, let me just give you some definitions that I, that I have of, of a disciple. I'll just pull these from kind of random uh, resources. Uh, what is a disciple? It's the pupil of someone. In contrast to the master or the teacher. So a disciple is one who has a master or a teacher. It implies that the person not only accepts the views of the teacher, but that he is also in practice and adherent to the things that the teacher teaches. Not just in belief, but in life. Okay. So discipleship is not just about material or knowledge or even a particular skill. Discipleship is about the transfer and the, the understanding, the development of an entire life. Uh, another definition, someone who has, who has decided, here's the definition of disciple. Someone who has decided to be with another person, to be with another person in order to become capable doing what that person does or to become what that person is. Often you hear of um, in college basketball, there's like these coaching lineages, right? You know, oh, he was a disciple of John Wooden. He was a disciple of Rick Pitino. He was a disciple of, you know, there's kind of these family trees of coaching. That's what discipleship is. You are with someone in the day in and day out and you want to become like them in what they do. You want to kind of replicate who they are in yourself. 
The problem is Scripture paints a very clear picture of discipleship for us, but we don't have a very good way to understand discipleship. We're at a disadvantage because we live in a time where this kind of master-teacher relationship is pretty rare. Um, you see it in, in uh, apprenticeships, you could call them, in, in the kind of in the more craftsman areas, but even those sorts of positions are, are dying out, right? But I, I would say the apprentice and master relationship might be the closest analog that we have, or even a coach, but even that, not so much. A coach is trying to bring out the best in an athlete, but the coach himself may not have and often does not have <laughs> the same sorts of, of abilities and skills as the athlete. Right, so even a coaching relationship isn't so much what we're talking about. So we're at a disadvantage. And, um, but the good thing is that Scripture, the, the, the whole idea of discipleship itself, which was a concept that was alive and well in the Greek world, um, that itself is an analogy for something that God wants with each of us. Mm -hmm. Okay, so discipleship was a thing before the Bible came around. Okay, teachers, rabbis, uh, gurus, or whatever, would have students who followed them around, and they wanted to become like them. And when Jesus came and began his ministry, he said, hey, you come, he said to some, some men, he said, come be my disciples. Come and follow me. And they left everything and followed him. They understood that discipleship is a thing, and here's someone that we want to be a disciple of. John, the Baptist, had disciples. So discipleship was a much more readily understood topic in the New Testament than it would be for us. But the good thing about that is, even in the New Testament, it's just an analogy. Discipleship is an analogy. Discipleship is not the eternal reality. Discipleship is the earthly analogy that God has used to help us understand the kind of relationship that we are to have with Jesus. But we can understand that kind of relationship in its fullness all through Scripture. Okay, so I'm going to explain a little bit more about what I mean by that. So a, a disciple is basically a student. Discipleship is being a student of someone, uh, not just in one particular area, but in all of life. But if you, if you zoom out of just the word disciple or discipleship to some other words that Scripture uses to describe this kind of relationship that we are to have with Jesus, you begin to see words like life, live, um, walk. Walk is a really important biblical word. We have a walk with God. A walk is... Basically, discipleship. Walking with God is basically what the New Testament means by discipleship. Teaching, training. When God calls people to uh, his ways, right? a, a way is a path. It's a, it's a road. And a way is the life of, of, when you follow in the way of someone, you are following in their life. You are their disciple. Learning, hearing, obeying, these are all uh, ideas and words that are all through Scripture, but all really do describe discipleship for us. 
Also, a big one, and this is really important in the in the Gospels: follow or come after followers. So you can't just look at all the places where discipleship is mentioned in Scripture to come to a real understanding of what it's about. What's discipleship pointing toward in Scripture? Well, you can go all through the Bible, and I'm going to walk through some, some passages in the Old and New Testaments to show this kind of relationship that God wants to have with his people that basically is discipleship. All right? So, in the Old Testament... We go all the way to Genesis. Everything starts in Genesis. You can find pretty much every important theme, biblical theme, in the first three chapters of the Bible. Did you know that? It's pretty awesome. Uh, Genesis 2. Let me see. Let me pull up my flashlight. There it goes. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil God made man, he brought him to life, gave him a special relationship with himself, and said, here is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we know what happened. Eve was tempted and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she gave some to Adam, who also ate. And when they did that, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 8 says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So God created man. And he was to, man had a, had a job, but he was to carry out that task and that job in relationship with God. And that's what the tree of life symbolizes. Life, in, life lived out in intimate relationship with God. You can eat of that tree all day. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes us carving our own path in the world. Us deciding how we want to steward the earth. How we want to shape uh, and, and cultivate the ground. We decide what's good and what's evil. Right? It's not the tree of good and the tree of evil. It's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're, we're, we are the ones who decide what's right and what's wrong. And so in that, what do we see? We see the kind of relationship, sadly, we see it most clearly when it's broken. God comes down in the cold of the day to walk with Adam and Eve. And we get a little, another little glimpse of when God is bringing the animals to Adam, and he's saying, hey, what are we going to name this? What are we going to name these creatures? This is man in conjunction with God stewarding the earth. And it's a great picture of what life was supposed to be like. So they decided that it was okay to eat of the tree, which was their first act of deciding between good and evil. And they ate of that tree, and it severed their, their relationship with God. 
in Genesis 17. This is where God calls Abraham. We're just going to kind of whiz through a few passages here. Genesis 17. Abraham, you remember, is the, is the man that God called so that he could begin the process of redeeming mankind back to himself. And in chapter 17, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And it's not, the word disciple is not used there. But the picture of what the kind of relationship that God was looking for between him and Abraham is what we would call a discipleship relationship. Walk before me. Live out your life in front of me. And be blameless. Do things the way that they are intended to be done. And in this open and intimate relationship that we have between you and me, I'm going to bring blessing into the earth and redemption into the earth. Deuteronomy 8. This is a great chapter, and it's um, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' words to the people of Israel before they head into the promised land. They've been wandering around. He brought them out of Egypt, and they uh, couldn't get it together. They couldn't quite trust him and obey him fully. And so he sentenced them to walk around in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation that didn't trust him, until they died out. And he says in chapter 8, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way, and all of these words that I mentioned, just listen for them. Way, walk, obey, do. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord God, your God, has led you. These 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and led you with hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And again, he's using food. What are you going to eat? Are you going to eat the food I give you? Are you going to partake of the tree of life? Which means living in conjunction and fellowship with me. Not going your own way. Living life out with me in response to my commandments. Are you going to trust those commandments? And in doing so, come into line with the way you were created to live. Now, he was trying to get them to understand that they don't live by bread alone. They live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. He was trying to get them to understand how to be good disciples. A disciple lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of his master. And this is God pleading them and inviting them into a life of what the New Testament would call discipleship. Psalm 119. This is a psalm of David, and it's, it's a meditation on 
the law of God and how good it is and how much it brings life. This is the proper attitude of a disciple to the words of his master. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you. We're not going to read the whole psalm, don't worry. <laughs> I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The tightness of relationship, the radical pursuit of the, of the words and the way of the master are spelled out so clearly and beautifully here in Psalm 119. And then on into Proverbs, it's all over the place as well. Uh, here's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. My son, the father-son relationship is interesting here. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. You will live. You will flourish. You will be the way you were created to be. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. This is a picture of the kind of relationship Jesus calls would-be disciples to have with him. Trusting in him with all the heart, not leaning on their own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then the last Old Testament uh, passage I want to point out is, is in Isaiah 31. And this is, we could go to any number of places to see this in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. But there's this, through the prophetic books, there's this, this constant mourning that God has frustration and anger that his peoples don't come to him for help. That his people don't seek him for what they need. And like I said, this is just one of the many passages that we could go to. Um, Isaiah 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. This is eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deciding who is helpful to me, deciding who we want to consult, who we want to trust, whose resource we want to seek. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers, against the helpers of those who work in iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. 
and they will all perish together. For thus says the Lord, for, for thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down and fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. In other words, what is Egypt going to do for you that I can't do a hundred times better? Why would you come and seek me? I am your maker. I can show you how to live. I can give you resource. I can protect you in ways that nobody else can. He is the one who created mankind, put him in the garden, and said, fellowship with me. And as you go about your work, and I am with you, you will fill the earth with my glory. And there will be life, flourishing life, fruitful life, and multiplication in the earth. So this is kind of the backdrop. You know, when we think of discipleship, it's easy to think of just kind of a religious term, uh, kind of a, you know, a word that we throw around. It's like, oh yeah, we're a discipleship church. Uh, we're, we have discipling ministries, and we have discipleship programs, and we have discipleship retreats, and we're all about discipleship, and here we're sitting at Starbucks doing discipleship. What are we talking about when we talk about discipleship? We're talking about coming into relationship with the God who created us. Hearing from him. Learning how to live this life that we have made a complete mess of. Learning how to leave and come back from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deciding what's good and right for ourselves, and deciding who can give us life and who can give us uh, advice and who can give us um, help counsel. We decide all that for ourselves, but when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we relinquish all that. And so here in the New Testament, when Jesus comes and he calls his first disciples, I love how Mark has it. Chapter 1. Mark 1.16 Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting an net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Follow me, he says, and the word is literally, and I will create I will creatively move in your life to make you something that you can't make yourself. I will make you to become. This is creative language. Follow me, come after me, and you will, you will be transformed as you do so. A little later in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. It's when he, he calls the twelve to himself. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. 
So these are two things that are not exclusive to discipleship in Scripture. Does God want us, does God want to create in us something? Yes, he always has. Does God want to make us something? Yes, that's why he made us in the first place. Does God want, and how does he do that? So he does it by being with us. He calls us to be with him so that he can make us into something. And this is what discipleship is. Being with God, and as a result, being made into who God always desired for you to be. It's what Jesus calls people to. Matthew, in uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, and it's one of the great teachings of Jesus, the great blocks of teaching. And, you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in, in that teaching, you will find that Jesus addresses pretty much every major area of life and every aspect of the person. Every aspect of who you are as a person, heart, soul, mind, however you want to divide it up, Jesus addresses that part of you in the Sermon on the Mount. And every aspect of your life that matters, Jesus addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what that is? That's a good master. That's the kind of master that you follow. He has something to say about every aspect of your life and every aspect and every part of you as a person. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go you now. You go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. The baptism is, is a total immersion. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? You bring them into this immersive life of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teaching is so crucial, but the teaching of God has to do with the whole person and all of life. And this is what discipleship is. Second um, Timothy, chapter 3. I think we're going to be in 2 Timothy quite a bit this weekend. 2 Timothy 3.10 You, however, Paul talking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What's he describing? That's a discipleship relationship. Timothy has followed not just one of these things. He has followed all of these things. I love how Paul says, you followed my aim in life. A disciple is someone who follows the aim in life of his master. Along with his conduct, his teaching, Faith, patience, these are character things, these are attitude things, these are spiritual qualities. 
The whole spectrum is what's transferred in a discipling relationship. But the problem is, so, I mean, we can see pretty clearly what a discipleship relationship is. It's, it's a transfer of life from one who knows and has, has the key of life to someone who doesn't, so that they can begin to live true life. A little later, Paul says uh, to Timothy in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't have a, they won't seek out a master. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit to suit their own passions. This is not discipleship. This is American Christianity. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Meaning they will not, they will not submit their lives, first of all, to, to Jesus and to Scripture in every area of life and give it precedent and give it priority in their life. Rather, they will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, decide for themselves who they want their teachers to be, according to their preferences, according to their likes, according to their passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is happening. We, we, we live in this time that Paul's talking about. People do not endure sound teaching. They walk away from it, and they go and find who they want to listen to, and it's those that suit their own passions. And so the question, the question I want to ask, so, I mean, there's a pretty basic picture of what discipleship means. What does it mean when, when we say we are called to be disciples? We are called to come to Jesus and to learn from him how to live our lives in every area and in every part of us. Okay? And it's not something that's just transferred occasionally. It's a, it's a whole life project. You see, the, the disciples in Scripture, they, they left everything to embark on this process of discipleship, the journey of discipleship with Jesus. Um, Dallas Willard, who wrote a, a book called Divine Conspiracy, is a great book on discipleship. It actually is, is really just a book on the Sermon on the Mount, on how Jesus is teaching really does affect every area of life and brings the kingdom into the earth. He says this, we settle back into de facto alienation of our religion from Jesus as friend and teacher and from our moment-to-moment -moment existence as a holy calling or appointment with God. Some will substitute ritual behavior for divine vitality and personal integrity. Others may be content with an isolated string of experiences rather than transformation of character. All right, so some, some just get in the, in the religious ritual mindset and say, hey, this is what it means to be a disciple. Some just kind of follow, you know, they live retreat to retreat. 
or altar call to altar call, and they, they say, I'm a disciple, but their life never really changes. The ones who just have to repent on their face every time that there's an altar. Right? He goes on, he says, that right at the heart of this alienation lies the absence of Jesus, the teacher, from our lives. Who's your teacher? Who do you look to? That's going to determine the extent to which you are a disciple. Because here's the other thing about discipleship. We are disciples. Whether of Jesus or of something else, somewhere else. Somebody's informing us how to live. Somebody's informing us what we should do. Someone is telling us what's right and wrong. Could be ourselves. Could be someone we admire. And Dallas Willard says this. This is just so insightful. Strangely, we seem prepared to learn how to live from almost anyone but him. We are ready to believe that the latest studies have more to teach us about love and sex than he does. And, that, and so this book was written, I think, in the late 90s. So there's some dated names here, but you can kind of fill in, you can see what he's saying. And that Louis Ruckheiser knows more about finances. I guess you could put in like, I don't know, who's a finance person? Dave Ramsey? <laughs> we want to learn about finances from Dave Ramsey. Dear Abby can teach us more about how to get along with our family members and co-workers. Does Dear Abby tell anyone what Dear Abby is? Raise your hand if you don't know what Dear Abby is. Dear Abby was like a column in a newspaper. Raise your hand if you know what a newspaper is. <laughs> <laughs> Where readers would write in questions that were like moral dilemmas. And she would kind of talk through the moral dilemma. Like, I live with my boyfriend, but his mother-in-law is really mean to me. What should I do? <laughs> and she would be trying to like untangle this big ball of, of uh, tension. He says, we believe that Dear Abby can teach us more about how to get along with our family members and co-workers. And Carl Sagan is a better authority on the cosmos. Who's the guy now? Neil, uh, Neil, what's Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson is a better authority on the cosmos. We lose any sense of the difference between information and wisdom. We lose any sense of the, dif of the difference between information and wisdom, and we act accordingly. So what he's getting at, he says, where we spontaneously look for information on how to live our lives shows how we truly feel and who we truly have confidence in. Now think about that. Where we spontaneously look for information on how to live shows how we truly feel and who we really have confidence in. Ask yourself, if you weren't sure how to do something, what's your first impulse? That's who's discipling you. Google is discipling you. <laughs> Google's algorithm is telling you how to live. 
you trust, you turn to, your impulse is to turn to whatever results Google brings up. Seems legit, checks out, let's go with it. How many of you, it's Google, disciples you mostly on how to live? You just, you're one of those researchers. You go and you figure out the answer. Someone sheepishly raised their hand in the back, but I'm sure there's more. Thank you for your boldness. Where do you look for information? Some of you have a friend that you just depend on them, and it's unhealthy. When you want to know what you should wear, you think about that person. You want to be like that? I should wear what they wear because they seem cool. They have friends. That's what I'm going to wear. That's who you're following. That's whose disciple you are. So he says, and I'll say it again, it's just so good. Where we spontaneously look for information on how to live shows us how we truly feel and who we really have confidence in. And nothing more forcibly demonstrates the extent to which we automatically assume the irrelevance of Jesus as teacher for our real lives. Man. Who's challenged by that? Raise your hand. Who needs to go and think about your sources of information on how to live? So the question is, who is your teacher? Who is your rabbi? Who do you follow? Who do you turn to? Who, whose life do you just default to and you fall in with? Is it Jesus? Is it really Jesus? Or is it sometimes Jesus on the Jesus stuff and on the, all the other stuff, it's someone else, something else? Now, I'll say, Jesus can put wise people in your life to help you live. And that's a big way that he actually does help us understand wisdom and how to live. But we never subject ourselves to those people the way that we do to Jesus. Jesus, how do you want me to live? Well, I've given you so-and-so. They can tell you how uh, you can mature in this area. Thank you, Jesus. I will go and do that. That's how the process works. When we go and we find that we understand where Jesus has placed us. We understand the people that he's put in our lives. And this is why Paul says we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't do it because they deserve my submission. We do it because Jesus says, hey, there's something you can learn about me through that person. Go and submit yourself to them. That's discipleship. That's following Jesus and him saying, well, yeah, you may not like them, but they can teach you a lot about me, even if it's just how much I have to put up with. <laughs> they can teach you that. Go learn that from them. We run everything through our rabbi. We run everything through the master. He shows us how to live.
So to fill out that question, do you go to Jesus first? Do you go to Jesus first to learn about every part of life, every part of your being? You struggle with emotions? Have you gone to Jesus or have you gone to Egypt? Do you struggle with your body? Have you gone to Jesus? Do you struggle with relationships? Have you gone to Jesus? And are you doing what he tells you? <laughs> this is what the life of a disciple is. Every aspect of our lives, there's clothing, there's food, all the lifestyle stuff. You know, there's so many different ways we can craft our lifestyle. Right? And at every, at every turn, there's someone on social media who's home to some kind of lifestyle that's designed to appeal to us so that we'll buy their stuff. I don't really want to be like an outdoorsy type. You know, there's an explosion of outdoor stores because people want to look like they go outdoors all the time. Or the at-leisure people, right? Well, I'm going to look like I'm just fit all the time. I just, I'm always just walking out of the cycle bar or whatever. We learn from these people how to dress. They teach us. And we listen. And we obey them. Emotions. Sexuality. And I, I hate to... I think it can get kind of creepy sometimes. How, how much we point to sexuality as like, hey, this is a big deal. You know, these sins are, are serious and we need to repent of these sins. But I'm talking to be broader than that. We live in an age where nobody has a clue what sexuality is for. Nobody. Could you, I mean, could you articulate to me the proper role of sex in our lives? According to scripture. Do you know? Or you, can you confidently say, here's what sex is for in our lives? You should know that. And if you don't know that, you need to be careful. Because there are millions and millions of lies aimed directly at you that unless you put up the shield of faith, they're going to drag you down. And you're just going to start to get sucked away into this crooked and perverse generation. And I'm not talking about gay or straight. I'm not talking about any of that. Do you understand why sexuality is a part of what God created? Can you confidently articulate that? And do you celebrate it as such? These are things we need to know. These are things we need to learn from the Word of God. And it's beyond little references. Okay? It's not just the four parts of Scripture that say, don't do this. It's the whole life that God has created us to live. Does this make sense? We need to know. It's not enough to just say, well, the world's obsessed with sex, and so, but we're going to be over here just not really sure. <laughs> That's no way to live. That's no way to build the kingdom of God. And I bring that up because that's a major battlefield of our time. You know, we don't choose the generation we're born into. We were born into a generation that is, at the same time, obsessed and completely ignorant about sex. 
100% obsessed, 100% ignorant. We are the lights in this generation, and we need to understand it. And we need to probably just lead everyone out of thinking it's such a big part of life. That might be what we need to do. Hey, it's not that big of a deal. Let's live the rest of our lives, okay? Tastes and preferences. You go to Jesus with those. You ask him what he thinks about the music you listen to. And honestly, lay it before his feet. Say, does this, does this honor you? Does it please you? Does it please you that I really like good coffee? That I had drink coffee twice a day? Does that please you, Jesus? I'm not, I'm not saying you need to give up things. I'm saying you need to, there should be nothing that you don't talk through with Jesus. And if you're hiding things, then you've already lost. If you're unwilling for him to get into certain areas and speak to certain areas, you're already off eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You've already hidden from him. And he's coming to walk with you in the cool of the day, talk about life with you, and you're off feeling guilty because you did something that you knew he probably wouldn't like. Friendships. You know, do you, do you navigate your friendships in conjunction with Jesus? How can I be the best friend to this person? Um, two more areas that I want to list: social media presence. Do you bring Jesus in on that? Do you ask, "Hey, what is the best representation of me as your disciple, Jesus?" As I broadcast things to the world, should I publicly like this thing in front of all the friends that follow me? Do you ask yourself, does that even go through your head? Or is it just an area that you just kind of have decided, well, I, I think I know what I'm doing. And then finally, just the way you comport yourself in social settings. And again, are you have you gone to Jesus? Have you even entertained the possibility that he can teach you how to do all of these things? He can teach you how you should act around the meal at the UCF retreat. He can. And he wants to. And everyone around you will be blessed when you hear and do that thing. Isn't that awesome? Jesus calls us to be his disciple. And he calls us to an immersive life with him that covers all of us. And he teaches us how to live in a way that we were created to live, which is to bring life into the world, order into the world, blessing into the world, his image into the world. That's what we were created to do. And he's the only one that can teach us how to do that. And that's what the call to discipleship is. Come and learn from me to be the person you were created to be. You have to leave everything behind. You have to forget what you knew. You have to abandon all of your other teachers. Except the ones that I say, hey, yeah, they have some good things to say, go listen to them. This is what a life in discipleship to Jesus looks like. Leave our former lives behind to follow after Jesus and learn from him. This is the heart of discipleship. And that is um, the basics of discipleship. Amen?
Um, what thoughts do you have or, or questions? I think we've got we've got as much time as I say we have. <laughs> What's that? Just a bonfire we get after this? If it'll light. Huh? If it'll light. If it'll light, yeah, it's kind of the sun. I thought everything you shared out of the Old Testament um, to give perspective on what it means to be a disciple is really helpful for me. I think I can get kind of narrow yeah. with thinking about discipleship. And that will lead me to say, oh, am I really a disciple of Jesus? And it was actually, it was really encouraging to me. He's like, no, I do walk. You know, I yeah. do walk with God. I do yeah. know the Lord. And it it sort of relieves some, I, I'm a guy who can tend to be guilty. It sort of relieves some of my, like, yeah. guilt with discipleship. That makes sense. Yeah, that's good. I mean, this, this should encourage lots of people. Yeah, that's what I want. Oh, thank goodness. He can teach me how to do that, too. Yes. Yeah. Right? If you really know who he is, and I, tell, I think there's lots of you here who are encouraged right now in the same way that, that Philip is. And, oh, yeah, it's not just this narrow thing. I don't have to just be a superstar student of Scripture, you know, and know all these theological things to be a disciple. No. It's, it's living in the way. Mm-hmm. And no two disciples are alike. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, what other thoughts are, are going going around in your heads right now? It can really help the Gospels open up to you. When you think about, hey, this Jesus guy is the same God that put Adam in the garden mm-hmm. and called Abraham and worked with Moses. And Joel said, this is who he is, and now he's just walking the earth as a man. And it adds like just this immense significance to everything that Jesus does called them to come learn from him. Well, this is what God did to the whole nation for generations in Israel's history. You read some of the prophets, he's like, ah, stubborn children. (laughs) Make a plan, but not mine. This is the same God. Now he's calling some people and saying, do you want to learn? Will you be faithful? Will you come after me and leave everything you know? And just trust me and not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. What else? What other thoughts before we uh, burn things? Burden to God is when we do it ourselves. <laughs> That's the biggest burden to God. They did it again. <laughs> That's not the way. <laughs> yeah. 
It was from the Divine Conspiracy, I'm almost certain, but I do not have a chapter or a page number. I would give myself a bad grade just for a paper. <laughs> D, insufficient citation. <laughs> Forgive me, Dallas. All right, well, this is going to be a good weekend, and this will change a few of your lives forever. It will. And I have, I have faith that it will. Um, you'll remember something, not necessarily from a teaching, but something that the Holy Spirit really speaks to your heart and really reveals to you about what it means to walk with Jesus in your life will be changed. And not only yours, but the, uh, everybody else in your life will be blessed because your life was changed in that way. And so I want to encourage all of us, you know, just the past six months, well, this whole year, 2020, I mean, there's so many different jokes about, oh, this year is the worst ever, the worst. Um, we've retreated. We're, we've pulled out of that. We've opted out of October 23rd, 24th, and 25th in the typical 2020 fashion. We have said we're going away, we're going to seek God, we're going to hear the word, we're going to fellowship with each other. And I want you to, to cultivate an expectancy. You know, I think everybody walks around in these days sort of uncertain, a little closed off, a little emotionally burnt out. Raise your hand if you feel like that somewhere. Your life is kind of like, eh, I just, or you're ticked off because of the way things are going. You just wish life would be back to normal. And that can really, <laughs> those attitudes can really hinder what God wants to do this weekend. So I want to encourage you to really retreat. Get away from that stuff. Come and seek God. And hear from him. We just walk around. I mean, we, we have space. We have distance out here. We're fine. Um, and open up yourself if you can. You know, I think some, I think some. This is the thing. I, I feel that many people have been just been closed off. And it's gone. Nope. I'm not. I'm just going to wait until it's all over. God can do something this weekend that will change your life. Revival can come into your life. Even now, as we're heading into the third wave of whatever, God can move. And I think is ready to move and really wants to move. Uh, if you will quiet yourself, really tune your attention to him, open your heart to him, and uh, invite him. And uh, be hum humble yourself before the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he will lift you up. Father, thank you for um, extending the invitation to us to come and, and be your disciples. Jesus, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is bringing to our remembrance the things that you did and said. 
And Lord, we just open up ourselves, we open up our hearts to you, to your word, to your speaking, to your nudging, Lord. We ask you to open the eyes of our hearts, uh, the eyes of our understanding, uh, to see things that we haven't seen before. Lord, or to, um, to see things that we've known, but we haven't really lived before. But have your way. Do the work that you need to do. You need to do some, uh, some more painful work. Lord, we invite you to do that because we know that the, the pain that you bring into our lives, uh, the, the, the destruction and, the, and the, the unlearning that has to go on, Lord, just leads to, to flourishing life and resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would come and tear down uh, some of the, the voices and the teachers that we have accumulated to ourselves. And that you would reveal how futile those are, how, how helpless those are. And Lord, that we would learn uh, to love your voice, to love your instruction. Just as David went on and on and on about how good your law was. Lord, that that would be our attitude towards you. Lord, walking with you, hearing from you, running everything by you. Lord, truly, your word brings life. And only you. And we don't live by bread alone, by, by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Continue to anoint all the other teachings. Lord, our times of worship. I just pray that this would be a, a refreshing and encouraging weekend uh, for everybody who has dedicated the time to be out here. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.